Thank you. All right, if you have your Bibles, we're going we're gonna to turn to two places, okay? Uh, I have about four and a half hours worth of information to share with you uh, in the next 30 minutes. So let's, let's get going. Uh, two places. We're going to go Matthew 19, uh, and then I want you to put your finger into Ephesians 5. Uh, if you're trying to go left to right, uh, you'll find Matthew 19 first, then keep going right, then you'll find Ephesians 5. Uh, and if you would like a Bible, a free one, we have some available for you. Just lift your hand, we'll get, we'll get someone to run one uh, to you. We'd love for you to take that and as a gift, uh, as a really cheap gift from us to you. Uh, and so, but it means a lot. So, so we're in this section of Matthew uh, as we've been trying to travel through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, verse by verse. And uh, in this section, one of the things we've noted is that there are some really uh some rather difficult choices Jesus kind of forces us to make. Uh, not that difficult choices in the sense that they're the wrong choices, but difficult choices in the sense that there are things you would rather do that are not these things. And, and what he does is he forces us to come into this realization of, of really acknowledging how do I want to live life? Uh, do I want to continue to do things according to my own way of thinking, or do I want to submit to the Word of God, believing uh, that the way He has instructed me to live uh, isn't restricting me, but is actually giving me this path to freedom, this this path to find joy, this path to find peace, and and so Jesus starts uh, this this section in chapter 18, and He says. The way you come to the Father is important. He says you come through humility, uh, that you would you would get over yourself, uh, and that you would come as a child does to their parents, declaring their dependence on them. That we would go to God saying, "I desperately, desperately need you." And and he says because of that, we earn the protection. Not earn, we are gained access to the protection of God uh, as His children. Then Jesus tells us that about some important matters in how we treat one another uh, regarding the church, regarding, as he says, God's little ones. Uh, He says that we are to protect and love and restore and to forgive uh, one another. And and what we know is that there are times in our lives when those decisions become very natural to us, right? Uh, You say, you know, that's that's easy. I can do that. Uh, And then there are other times when you say, I would rather do anything but those things that Jesus has told us is right to do and fitting uh, to do. And, and this is, I, I think, some of the most, uh, this is going to sound strange, but I think this section, 18, 19, and 20, uh, we find some of the most liberating parts of Jesus' teaching uh, because he tells us of God's desire. He says, this is the way God wants you to live. So if you're ever wondering, what does God want me to do? Jesus says in these matters, these things. And so we, we're not left wondering, we're just left having to apply those into our lives. And, and, so, uh, and so this morning, Jesus is going to continue uh, to be invasive in your life. And if you think that Jesus doesn't come to be invasive in your life, then you have grossly misunderstood Jesus. Uh, because he continues uh, to, to do that. In fact, he's going to walk right in to our marriages, and he's going to reveal God's desire for us to walk in unity with our spouses. And now, the topic that's going to be brought before Jesus uh, from the Pharisees, as we'll find out, is going to end up being uh, the topic of divorce. And uh, and, and, and he, uh, Jesus, will not shy away from the topic, which is why we will not shy away from uh, the topic, because Jesus said that we want to, to explore it. And, but as we talk about marriage and as we talk about divorce today, uh, my fear is anytime we bring up uh, this subject, uh, if, if, if you have gone through the difficult choices of divorce, uh, my, my fear is that you'll somehow today feel very unqualified because of your past. Uh, and, and I just want to let you know that in Jesus, that's, that's not necessary. Uh, you, you may feel... Um, some human-driven or, or enemy-infused guilt that would cause you to spend the remainder of your time today living in a moment uh, and being trapped 
in a moment. And, and I'm here to tell you that because of Jesus, you don't have to live in that moment. You don't have to be trapped in that moment. Uh, and so my prayer is that any pressing you would feel today, that it would be from the Holy Spirit, uh, and that uh, He would speak to you this morning for your edification, and, and where repentance and where forgiveness is necessary, my prayer is that you would walk in those steps, that you would uh, be willing enough to listen to the Holy Spirit with your fences down, with, with no guards, and say, okay, speak to me here. Uh, because as we're going to see, the Pharisees want to have a conversation about divorce. Jesus wants to have a conversation about marriage. Okay? So, so that's kind of where we go. And I'm going to pray. Uh, and if any of you want to chicken out and leave, uh, you're welcome to do so. I'll keep one eye open so I can call you during the week. So uh, let's pray. Father, we come to you and we just, uh, in this moment, we submit to your word. And we pray that as you walk us through your instructions and, and your insights, that we would do so with this longing to please you because you have bestowed upon us so much love and so much mercy. We pray that we would respond today through the power of your word in ways that creates an offering unto you that is pleasing. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said... Amen. All right, so, so here's what we're going to do. We're going we're to walk through part of Matthew 19, and then it's going to connect us to Ephesians 5. And so let's, let's just start reading, because there's not a ton of commentary that needs to happen. So, so now, okay, uh, so Jesus has just been talking to us about how to treat one another in the church, uh, and now a scene is about to change, okay? So now, when Jesus had finished saying these things, and he went away from Galilee, and he entered the region of Judea, Beyond the Jordan. Okay, so if you've tracked with your map, I know some of you like to draw them. No, I'm joking. Um, so he went from this place to that place to that place. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Verse 3, and Pharisees came to him, and, and we can circle these next two words, and tested him by asking, is it lawful to, to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he, being Jesus, said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, instead, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Husbands, that's for you. You can say, wife, I'd like to hold fast to you. Um, it's biblical. Nobody thought that was funny uh, because it's very practical. And the two shall become one flesh. Verse 6. So they are no longer two but one. And then we find this very familiar set of words that we hear at weddings all the time, right? What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Okay? Let not man separate. And this is, this is clarifying in case you were wondering. When, when God brings two people together in marriage, they become one, carried by the covenant of God. Uh, and... And the intent is that we would not separate the two, okay? And, it, and you're like, boy, that's deep thought about marriage, right? Um, and so, so let's continue. Verse 7. They said to him, okay? So the Pharisees said, can we divorce for any reason? Jesus says, hey, don't you remember? God, God put this together. He doesn't want you to separate it. And they said to him in verse 7, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? In verse 8, Jesus says to them, Because of your, and circle these words, hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. From the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And so you say, well, Bags, is that really it? Or is that, is that really what you think? You really think that that's, it's so narrowing because that's the allowance? And my answer to you is yes. And you say, well, I don't know if I like that. And I say, well, I didn't write it. Jesus did. Okay? Actually, God wrote it. Jesus is just reminding us of it. And I think verse 8 is, is, is powerful and it's telling about God's desire for marriage because the original 
design doesn't have divorce in mind. But he says that the hardness of the human heart brought divorce into the most intimate relationships that we have with, with another human. Uh, and, and this continues to be the most tragic form of, of our relationship. Uh, Jesus gives us this qualifier as an exception, uh, not that we were trying to find a loophole, not that he's trying to give us a loophole, uh, but, but to reveal the intimacy that God has in mind for our marriages. In, in verse 10, the disciples said to him, so now the disciples decide to, to have a conversation with Jesus, and it's, it's kind of that's comical to me. Uh, the disciples said to Jesus, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is not better to marry. But Jesus said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it's given. For there are eunuchs uh, who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. Uh, there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And if you don't know what a eunuch is, it's, yeah, this just got uncomfortable. Um, it's a castrated man, okay? Uh, and so, you know, like, that's good information for me to know tomorrow when I go to work. Uh, so he says this. He says, let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. And, and this, is, this is what I, I think is funny. Which is Jesus has de- declared to the Pharisees as they are trying to test him, you know, what is God's purpose for marriage? And Jesus says some things, and the disciples say, you know, it's just better that we not get married at all. And Jesus says, yep. And just leaves it. But he says, but it, he goes, I know that doesn't work for everybody. Because God's pursuit is for your holiness and your purity. So, there are some that it is the case to remain sexually pure, you get married. Uh, and, and so... The, the question of divorce in the church uh, is is really it's, it's pretty simple, uh, and we're gonna we're gonna experience a moment here in Ephesians five where you're like uh, where you want to build up some walls and and I think we can all agree that divorce is not the end goal of the relationship uh, that that no one thinks fondly of the day of divorce while they're standing at the altar of the wedding at the wedding okay. When they make vows, your, our hearts are commit, truly committed to one another. Um, and so, so I don't think it's helpful uh, to spend the remaining part of our time this morning circling this one thought, that divorce breaks the heart of God. Okay? Because it does. Okay? We don't, we don't have to circle that thought very much longer because we know it's, pretty, it's very simply and clearly stated uh, in the Word. And so, but, but what I want us to do is is realize that, that if we're honest with the question of divorce, um, especially when it comes to the church, uh, any, any complaints we have about what God says about divorce tends to deal with our own justification for our own actions. Okay? So, so that, that's kind of where we're, we're going to leave that. Uh, for, for Jesus is pretty plain about that desire. So, but, but I'm trapped this week on verse 8. Okay? Because what has Jesus said to them? He says, it wasn't like this in the beginning. Moses gave you this allowance because of the hardness of your heart, but it wasn't like that in the beginning. And so now our question on the table is, what was it supposed to be like in the beginning? And this is, this is where we're going to end up uh, in Ephesians chapter 5. And as we do that, we, we need to make an assumption. Okay? And I love making assumptions when I have the microphone. Uh, because we get to assume that I'm right, okay? Now, if you would like to argue that fact, go find your own mic uh, and convince Corbett to let you in on this conversation, okay? So, so we're going to make this, which he won't do, right? Uh, no? He's like, well, maybe. Um, but, but we need to make this, this general assumption regarding marriage in general, okay? Now, we are in church, and I am speaking primarily... Uh, to Christians, and so, so I think this won't come as a shock, um, but, but marriages, this is our assumption, that marriages are healthier, and marriages are glorifying to God when both the husband and the wife are passionately pursuing their relationship with God, both in unity and individually. Okay? Most of the time, 
when, when marriages break or are in conflict in the Christian church, it's because one of the two partners have abandoned this pursuit. That's, that's the way it works. So we are most healthy, we are most glorifying to God when both the husband and the wife are passionately pursuing God. That, that a gospel-centered marriage begins with gospel-centered people. Uh, and so, so, so let us understand where our hearts are in regards to adoring Christ. Where our hearts are in regards to loving God, it has this deep connection in the health of our marriages. It, it is true. And the effects of the gospel are, are greatly expressed in the book of Ephesians. And it's one of my favorite letters in the New Testament. Because what Paul does is he's speaking to the, to the believers uh, in Ephesus. And he looks at them and he says this. He goes, since Jesus has come into your life and since he has changed everything. Because that's, that's what Jesus does. He takes what is broken and he makes it healed. He takes what is dead and he brings it back to life. And so Paul is writing this letter to the church and he says, since Jesus changes everything in your life for your better, he says that that you need to realize this effect is great, that you are no longer your own. You are no longer who you used to be. Rather, you are now redeemed. You are now restored. You are now being transformed into something greater. And, and chapter 5, when it comes to marriage, brings us some of the most specific roles. In fact, there's really just one role per person. Uh, so it's not this exhaustive uh, approach to marriage, but it brings some very specific roles regarding husbands and wives. And, and, and we're going to get there. But, but I want us to make a pit stop at verse 1. I believe it sets the context for these roles. So if I just came in and I said, um, wives, biblically, uh, you are told to submit. Uh, and I say, husbands, biblically, you are told to sacrifice. You, Some of us would be like, I don't know if I like that idea. Uh, and I'm like, well, I didn't write it again. I'm just telling you what was said. Uh, but but the context in, in verse 1, I believe, is, is so very helpful. Because he says this. Paul starts, therefore. Okay? So circle that word, therefore. Because it, it tells us something. And what does it tell us? That there was something said before. So, so based on what we've been discussing these past four chapters, okay, and, and we don't have time to go there, but, but it's significant. It says, therefore, so something's about to change or be built on based on this previous statement. Therefore, be imitators of God. You're like, oh, that's simple. All right, good. Got it. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk and walk in love as Christ loved us, gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. And this is that statement. Be imitators of God. And and I don't know about you, but that sounds incredibly intimidating to me. It does. And it would remain so. It would remain very intimidating if it weren't for the indwelling Holy Spirit who helps us understand what that looks like. That we are to be imitators of God like children who imitate their parents. Now I think for some that as, as a parent you, you need to understand that there are things your child imitates in you. Right? Uh, in my house usually that's brought up when Barrick is just annoying the snot out of Misty. And she says he gets that from you. Uh, and, and rarely is there anything, like, really good. Like, like Barrett made all A's all year long, all E's in conduct, and she never looked at me and said, he gets that from you, right? Uh, no, never, never. But, but for this case, if it's annoying and she wants to punch her son in the face, my fault somehow. Um, raise your children up in the way of the Lord, and they will not depart from the path of annoyance. And so, uh, uh, and so... So we are to be imitators of God like children who imitate their parents. And now here's what, here's what you need to know about imitating God. Is that the best way to imitate someone is first by, is by spending time with them. It's, it's, it's by looking and studying them. It's by watching how they act. By watching how they react. It's, it's about pondering what they think and why they think that way. It's about 
It's about asking yourself, what is driving them? And here Paul tells us to put that energy of imitation not into the patterns of the world, which is really easy to do, right? What, is the, what are these other people doing? How can I do that? He says, don't put your energy into that. He says, put your time, put your energy into studying and imitating the things of God. Walk in His way. And now, now the challenge is, he says, that as you imitate God, your feet are going to take you places. And so as you walk, there's a manner that He wants you to walk in. And so He says in verse 2, He says, then walk in, what's the word? Love. Okay? But what, is, what happens at the end of that statement? Is there a period there? Okay, and that's good news for you and me. Because if Ephesians 5 verse 2 simply says this, walk in love, we would be left wondering what kind of love. Right? Because can we agree there are, and we talk about this quite a bit here, that, that there are different designations for that word that we have here, that, that we can love um, ice cream, we can uh, love Netflix, we can love the Cowboys, we can love your spouse. And all of those things should be different designations. I'm just letting you know, if you love the Cowboys more than your spouse, that there's a Yeah, you're like, oh, yeah. You got... I said cowboys, and you're like, oh, I might as well wake up for this. This might get interesting. But we have this designation, and we, we can all agree that those are differing levels, right? And so, so if Paul says walk in love, we're like, well, what kind of love? What kind of affection should I be walking in when it regards love? And, and so that just got really loud on me, didn't it? All right. That's good. All right. So that's what I always sound like? Um, so, okay. So, so the good news for us is that verse 2, it doesn't end with a period at love. It ends with, with a comma, which means there's going to be more to this thought. And so he says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So now we know what kind of love we're supposed to be walking in. That as we imitate God, we, we walk in a very specific kind of love. And, and this is where our Bibles, our English translation will, will kind of fail us. Because there's a specific word that, that Paul is using in the Greek. And it's, it's the word agape. Okay? There, there's typically these, these three different kinds of loves expressed in the Bible. You got uh, eros, which is like passionate love. Uh, you have uh, phileo, which is a brotherly kind of love. And then you have agape, which is this self-sacrificing kind of love. And, and so, so Paul tells us that we are to walk in this self-sacrificing kind of love. The same kind of love that Jesus puts on display for us. Uh, the same kind of love that Jesus is walking in as an offering to, to him. And so, so now, now here, here's what I know about this instruction, is that walking in love forces us to say, that's it? That's all? Just, just walk in love? That, that sounds almost so simple that I feel like you're tricking me. I mean, because surely there, there's walk in love and do these other things, Right? And God says, no, you, you would walk in love. And I think the reason why we are saying, I think you need to, I think what he really is trying to say is walk in love and do these other things is because we treat love too cheaply in our society. We, we, we don't foster it. We don't champion it. We don't care for it. Uh, too often, love becomes this currency that we use. We, we spend it or we save it at our discretion. And then we're talking about marriage today, so let's just keep your thoughts in that little box. Right? Have you, and don't, don't raise your hand on this, okay, because this would be embarrassing if you were the only one that did it. Have you ever chose to save your love because you didn't believe they deserved it in that moment? Have you ever used that kind of love as, as a weapon? No? Yeah, that's why I said don't raise your hand, because you might be the only one. Um, 
And this, this is what I love, is, is that for the believer, it, it's no longer an option. It isn't. He says, you're not allowed to do that. If you're wondering, do I not do a loving thing here? Jesus says, that's never the option. You never withhold it. Because their self-sacrificing kind of love that Jesus has put on display didn't come with this idea of like, yeah, I don't want to do that today. Never once. You walk in love because you have followed the path of God's love. We've been shown love by God through Christ. Now we imitate God by displaying His love. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You don't have to turn that. I'll just read it to you. I'm sorry, chapter 5. says this, For the love of Christ controls us. Uh, the NIV, as, I don't know if it's the new NIV, the old NIV, when I learned the verse, says that the love of Christ compels us. That we can't, we can't do anything but do this. Since the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, that Jesus has died for all, therefore all have died. We have died in Jesus' death. And He died for all that those who live might no longer live for... This is, this is where our toes get stepped on. Get no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for, this, for, who for their sake died... And was raised. He says that your life in Christ has become about Christ, not you. And this continues to remain at play for about 20 verses, uh, especially in 20 verses, and when we're talking about the roles of husbands and wives. And in the meanwhile, Paul, to help us understand the context, he continues. So, what's the argument? He says you need to imitate God by walking in love. What kind of love? The love that Jesus has modeled for us. And then he will say these things in, in verses 3 through 14 in Ephesians 5. He'll say, he'll say, walk in the light, not in the darkness. And you're like, well, that sounds really simple. <laughs> Just don't do things where I want to hide my actions from people. Okay? If you're wondering, is, is what I'm doing right now good or sinful? Do you want other people to see that? And you say, no then typically that's a sinful activity. And you're like, I don't like how simple that explanation just was because I want to make it more difficult so I can continue to do those things, right? In verses 15 through 17, he tells us to walk wisely because there's a, there's a specific time that we're living in. In verses 18 through 19, he'll tell us to allow the Holy Spirit to create unity in us. And then he'll lead us to verse 20, where we're instructed to simply do this. Giving thanks always and in everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we would give thanks to God always because of Jesus. That we would submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, now, here's, here's what... I only bring this up because it's going to become very pertinent in a moment for the roles of wives and husbands. Because we're going to use the same word. But here's what you need to know. Before wives are told to submit to their husbands, we as believers are called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay? So if you think, oh, well, I don't have to submit because I'm not a wife, uh, that's not the case. Paul is telling us as believers, this is how we live. So he says, we submit to one another, all right? That, that forms accountability inside the body of believers out of reverence for Christ. Not out of this, you've earned the right for me to submit to you. I submit because of what Christ has done for me. And because our lives are not our own, because of what Christ has done, what we have been incapable of doing for ourselves, our lives joyfully become His. Our careers our homes, our marriages, our dreams, all of it become His. So, so thanksgiving begins to take root and it spills over into every aspect because we are just so amazed and so captured by the fact that God has chosen to rescue us. And so now, now we come to the husbands and the wives. And, and I know you're like, there's like four blanks to fill in. We're going to hit those pretty quickly here in a moment. Okay? You're like, we really are going to be here all day. Um, so we get, we get these instructions about husbands and wives. And, and, and here's what I'm aware of this week. is just how these words are pretty self-explanatory. If, if we remove our arguments that come when we, because we have seen these, 
roles abused. Maybe in the lives of someone else, maybe in our own stories. Because when we see these things and we want to build arguments against them, we need to understand that what is what Jesus, what Paul is referring to here and what Jesus has been trying to connect us to is the way it was supposed to be in the beginning. The design. That God has these specific things at play from the beginning. And so if you come in and you say, well, God, that I don't think you understand marriage. God says, I assure you I do. And the problem that you have with this moment has nothing to do with my design, but the sinfulness of either your own life or just the fact that you are in a fallen and broken world. And so, so this is, we're going to try to read these words with our walls down, uh, if only for a moment, and we're going to try to just stay out of the way. Uh, because cause what we're getting here isn't three simple steps to be a better wife or three simple steps to be a better husband. Okay? What we're getting here is, is God telling us this is how we treat one another. This is how we walk in union in our marriages. And he says this, verse 22, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. I, I was giving a wedding. I was doing a wedding one time, and I said this uh, to the bride, and I swear to you, I thought she was going to beat me up uh, on the stage. And she could have done it. She was stronger than me. Um, and, and I was just like... It, because I said, you know, there's specific roles. And, and God, for instance, God says, wives, submit to your husband. And she's like, what? And I was like, I didn't make that up. Okay? Don't get mad at me about that. Um, but it says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, okay? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or without wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and she might be without blemish that she might be beautiful the way god has designed it to be in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies he who loves his wife loves himself for for no one ever uh, hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it uh, just as christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, therefore, we get to this point. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Where have we heard that before? All right? Yeah. Matthew 19. Thanks for explaining that to Brandon um, in football terms. Uh, and so, so Tim, Tim, Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller, put it this way. In, in his book, uh, The Meaning of Marriage, which is an incredible, incredible resource. Uh, in fact, we just went through it in our merge groups uh, this past spring. Uh, but, but he says that in, in the wife's submission and in the husband's sacrifice, each get to play a Jesus role in the marriage. Not that they get to play Jesus in the marriage, but they get to play a part in displaying characteristics of what Jesus has done for us. And... And this is how, in part, we walk in love through our marriages. We, we, this is how people see your marriage and they praise your Father who is in heaven. Because, as we're going to find out in verse 32, Ephesians 5, this mystery, okay? So, what's the mystery? Marriage, okay? If you're like, gosh, this is a mystery. Some of you are like, yeah, it's very mysterious. Uh, I, I am constantly bewildered by the fact that Misty said yes, Okay? Constantly, um, like, like I asked her to marry me before guys at Tarrant County College could have outranked this guy. Okay, I was like, hey, I gotta ask you to marry me before some dude from Boswell takes you away from me. All right, so, uh, so he says this mystery, it's it's profound, and he says I'm saying I'm saying that your marriage, your marriage is bigger than you. I'm saying your marriage is this beautiful picture of Christ and the church. 
So he says, he says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see she respects her husband. Piper, John Piper said it this way one time. He says, marriage is about holiness before it's about happiness. And the reason it's about holiness before happiness is because happiness is very fleeting. Right? I can be incredibly happy in one moment and I can be utterly devastated in the next. But he says, and if that's the way your marriage goes, man, you're going to struggle. And, 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 and I think any time we want to hijack marriage for our own purposes, we open the door for some very dangerous things to walk in. For instance, I'm just not happy. Your marriage is about the gospel before it's about how you feel or it's a, before it's about what the two of you are building that it's a picture for all to see how Christ treats the church. And he never forsakes the church. He never betrays the church. He always loves. He always protects. His love for the church always perseveres. You can just spend some time in 1 Corinthians 13. And you can see, how does Christ love the church? It's in those designations. That he is always patient. He is always kind. He is always gentle. So let me, let, me, let me give you four things. And the question on the table is this. How do I walk in love with my spouse? If Jesus changes everything, how does, his, how does he have an effect in my marriage? And these aren't four simple steps, by the way. These are just four thoughts to ponder. That number one, that you would love Christ more than you love your spouse. You would love Christ more than you love your spouse. The lie of our world... Okay? And either it's the lie of just human mankind or it's the lie of the enemy is to convince us that your spouse should complete you more than anyone else. Okay? And let's just avoid any Jerry Maguire reference into that. Okay? Alright? Just avoid it. Because it's, it's just a complete and utter falsity that your spouse would complete you. Because if your expectation, okay, if your expectation is that your spouse complete you, I promise you this, it will take very little time for them to crumble under the weight of your expectations. Okay? It will. It will take no time at all. And I think it's even quicker if you're the wife. Because your husbands are idiots, just like I am. Okay? If you expect your spouse to complete you, they will fail you. Very quickly. And so the pursuit is that your love for Christ is, is the only way you can love your spouse well. It's the only way you can love your spouse in a healthy way. That you would love them. And, and I, gosh, you want to talk. I thank God Misty loves Jesus more than she loves me. Because that, that binds us together in, in unity. That does. Longing to honor Christ with our lives will help us become a husband worth following, will help us become wives worth pursuing. Okay, number two. And this, this, this one is probably the hardest. I put this in two so I didn't have to end with it. Um, that I love my spouse by not trying to keep things even. Rather, I, I want to remember how God has cared for me in Christ and respond extravagantly. Just extravagantly. Fairness, uh, we've, we've said it this way before, fairness ended in the garden, right? Uh, when, when, when we deserved annihilation, we received mercy, okay? From that point forward, all relationships have been out of balance, okay? Our desire as adults is very similar to our desire as kids, hey, hey, if you're a sibling, I think you could probably appreciate this. Have you ever had your, your sibling receive more of an item than you received? That it was never cut right down the middle? Like, wait, they got more. They got more than I did. Right? And so even as adults, we have this desire to keep things even. Even in our marriages, we want to keep things even. Even And in marriage, when the expectation is, is more on fairness and not love, we will consistently find ourselves in conflict. Either first we'll find ourselves in conflict in our own hearts, then secondly we will find ourselves in conflict with our spouses. 
Well, that's, that's not fair. I had to do more than you did. That's not fair. I'm pulling more weight than you are. That's not fair. That's not fair. That's not fair. And, and the beauty of the gospel is that, yes, none of it's fair. And you benefit greatly from that. You benefit so much more from that. And this is why we imitate God. We remember how He has cared for us in Christ and we love our spouses in spite of their flaws. We love our spouses in this self-sacrificing kind of love in spite of their inability to meet or exceed our expectations. Rather those expectations be expressed or unexpressed. Right? Even in those moments when you're like, yeah, I expected you to read my mind. And he's like, I... I don't know what you're thinking. Can't do that. And I think it's that, that we talked about this last week in the parable of the unforgiving servant. And it, it, it's, it's this guy who owes a debt to a person, to a king, uh, that would take a lifetime or more than for him to pay back. And the king shows mercy instead of sending him to the dungeon. And, and the guy's walking down the streets and he sees a guy and he says, hey, you owe me a couple of hundred bucks. And he grabs him by the throat, throws him in prison and says, you know, hey, you need to pay me back. And the king comes in and he says, whoa, 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 whoa. How in the world did you forget what I forgave you? How in the world can you treat him after you've been relieved of such an enormous debt? And we read those words and I think I, I should have said it this way last week. Um, but, but we read those words and, and we want to approach it from this human standard of, of how many times should I forgive? And now I know I'm forced to forgive. God tells me to forgive because uh, he tells me this parable. I have to forgive you now. And when we approach marriage in that way, well, God tells me I have to love my spouse. So now I'm going to have to love my spouse. And it becomes this, this responsibility You've completely missed the boat. Because the parable of the unforgiving servant is this, this constant reminder that God has forgiven you a debt that you could not afford. That God has released you from that. So he says, he says you always remember that. You never leave it. You don't say, well, now I have to forgive you because God told me to. No, no, I, I forgive you because God has forgiven me of such a greater offense. And so now if... if the approach in our marriage is to keep things even. We no longer want to serve out of love. We want to serve out of selfishness. Because it becomes about how we feel. And so we try to avoid that, not by saying, well, the God, God says I have to love you. We do that by saying, God has loved me, a wretchful sinner. And now I get to respond and I get to lavish you with that love, regardless. Not even if, not even if you don't deserve that love at that moment, regardless if you deserve it. It's off the table. I just love you. I just love you. Number three, or eight, or twelve, whatever we're at. I love my spouse by remembering my marriage is a picture of how Christ loved the church. That your marriage. If you want to honor God with your marriage, you remember it's a picture of the gospel. And the gospel is good news for all to see. So how you handle conflict in your marriage, which, by the way, that's, that's part of it. Okay? I'm, I'm not saying if, if you would, if wives, if you would just merely submit and husbands, you would merely sacrifice, you will no longer have any issues in your marriage. I'm not saying that. But how you handle conflict becomes noticed. How you treat one another, how you speak to one another, how you guard one another. Uh, am, I, am I a proponent for guardrails in marriages? Absolutely. But it's not, it's not so certain things that we've done in, in our marriage that I think is, is helpful um, is, is like, for instance... Um, I, I don't hang out with women by myself. Uh, if you called and said, hey, I want to hang out with you, no. Hey, I need to meet with you. Well, we can, but, but my wife will be there. Misty has access to my phone. She has access to my search history. We have open conversations. I don't get in cars with, with women that aren't my wife or I'm related to, like, my sister or my mother. 
Uh, and I don't want to ride with really any of them anyways. Uh, I'm joking. I love some of those other people. Um, but there are, there are people who will say, okay, wait. So you, you have these guidelines. You have these boundaries, I should say. Um, and, and they will think it's restricting. They will think, well, she should just trust you. And she does. I spend, I spend every day trying to earn her trust and to protect her trust in me. Because I want her to believe in me as her husband. Uh, I, I want her to feel safe around me before she can have to trust anything that I do. And so, so, so we have these boundaries not to keep me restricted and not to give her more oversight. We have these boundaries because my desire is to honor her. It's to honor her as a husband worth following. I lay down these, what people would consider freedoms, and I'm like, that's not, a, that's not a freedom for me. It's not a boundary. I don't feel like I'm being kept from doing anything. I think it's just a way of honoring one another because she, by the way, has the same kind of boundaries in our marriage because her desire is to honor me as her husband. And so, but, but none of it has to do with how we feel. It has to do with we long for our marriages to mean something more than just the story of the two of us. We want Christ to be magnified in how we treat one another and how you guys see the way we treat each other and how a dying and dark and hopeless world would see a marriage that actually works beyond my bewilderment. And so lastly, number four, we can start wrapping this up. That, that I love my spouse, okay? You want to talk about a simple instruction. I will love my spouse by constantly asking this one question. Okay? This one question. What is the most loving thing I can do in this situation? And you're like, oh, that sounds like it needs to be more complicated. Because if it's more complicated, I don't have to do it. Right? What is the most loving thing I can do in this situation? And, and we, we get this from... This verse in 1 Corinthians 16, actually we get this from a lot of places, specifically this morning from 1 Corinthians 16, 14, where, where Paul is giving us these instructions and he gets to this thought and it's almost like an afterthought. He says, and do everything in love. So as a believer, you would do everything in love. Now, with that instruction, do you believe that that applies to your marriage? Somebody like, I don't know, is this a trick question? No, it does. It doesn't say do everything in love with the exception of your marriage. Because can't we agree that some of the worst things we've ever said in, the, in our entire lives have been directed at a person who we hope would love us unconditionally? Right? No, just me? Okay. I'll just live in those regrets. But imagine what your, your marriage would look like if in the midst of conflict you asked yourself, how can I lash out in love? What is, what is the most loving thing I can... Some of you fought on your way up here this morning and this is very applicable. What's the most loving thing I can do right now? Is getting even the most loving thing I can do right now? No. Is winning this argument the most loving thing I can do right now? Most of the time, not. How can I respond to him? How can I respond to her in this moment that connects our hearts to the gospel of Jesus Christ? You know what that forces us to do? To breathe, <laughs> to take a moment, and to settle our hearts, to refine what is stirring in there. Because all of those words, all of those things that you've regretted that you've said to your spouse have cr been created right in here. So come in. You say, how do I have a God-glorifying marriage? 
one of the ways is that you speak words of love over them. You're like, well, that, that sounds flowery. I don't think that's good. No, no, it is. Husbands, you are a strong tower for your wife when you love her with the love of Christ. Something in her gets lit up when you lead your family the way you were supposed to lead your family. Beauty is seen in your spouse when you love her the way Christ has loved the church. Wives, your husband becomes strong when you are partnering with them in this adventure. When you say, I know we don't have all of the answers, but I'm with you. Lead this family. We would do that well. I love you guys. Our desire this week is to love God. Bye. Please stand with me. We want to give you some time. I'm sorry I went super long today. Um, it's just so much information. Just so much information. We'll, we'll cut it short next week, I'm sure. Um, they won't remember I said that, right? So, if you need prayer this morning, we want to pray with you. Uh, Mark and Troy and Michelle and Jessica, they'll be up here. They want to, they want to pray with you. Maybe, maybe you need to spend some time with your spouse in prayer with someone. Uh, I trust any of those people. Trust any of those people to walk with you. Maybe you need to, to ask Jesus into your life. Any of those people would love to do that. We would love to celebrate with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning because of your word and because of your heart for us. We pray that we would have marriages that honor you. We pray that we would be a people who honor you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.